Before we get started with this episode, a few quick things. First of all, if you like what you're hearing, please consider donating to my podcast. You can do so by going to my website, rabbiproject.com, and clicking on the Donate tab. Also, I am officially on the speaking circuit, so to say. So if you're interested in having me speak to your group of any size, just shoot me an email, justin at rabbiproject.com. Once again, justin at rabbiproject.com. And finally, everyone interviewed for this podcast speaks solely for themselves. Welcome to American Rabbi Project, the podcast about American Judaism from the perspective of rabbis around the country. I'm Justin Regan. It's been about a year since I moved across the country to Baltimore, Maryland. I did it at the time so my long-distance girlfriend and I could start our lives together. Now she is my very near-distance fiance. You know her as show contributor Beth Vanderstoop. This major life step came with a myriad of adjustments. I had never lived with a serious romantic partner before. I had never lived on the East Coast, and I had certainly never lived a Jewish life that was so observant. If you were to ask my fiancé what her denomination is, she would go on a long-winded rant about conservative Judaism and how it's different in Canada. Long story short, she's Orthodox. So now I find myself in that world. We keep a kosher household and attend services in an Orthodox synagogue downtown. To some people, that might not seem like much, but it's a long way from my childhood where I grew up in what can be best described as a textbook culturally Jewish household. This included a deep pride in my Jewish identity, but also with some negative opinions towards Orthodoxy. In many cases in the secular world, Orthodox Jews can be a bit of an anachronistic boogeyman perceived as following rigid traditions, backwards beliefs, and occasionally whisking away a secular young adult to shave their head or grow their sideburns to join the ranks. We live in a world of caricatures. And just like in so many other cases, these stereotypes recede once you actually meet the people you've heard so much about. This includes my college rabbi, Dovi Shapiro, whom I've interviewed in this show's pilot, He's a chassid who oversees a vibrant interdenominational student community. He doesn't care how you get to his house on Shabbat. He's just happy you're there. Shapiro showed me that halakhic practices do not have to be rigid, but a source of great joy and dedication. And there is my fiancé who showed me that traditions don't have to be oppressive. They could be empowering. When you build a life with an Orthodox person, there's still plenty of give and take. We keep a kosher household, but I'll still scarf down the occasional trafee treat in the backyard, or the grocery store parking lot, or outside Taco Bell. We walk to synagogue every Shabbat, but Saturday is also for Minecraft. It's a lifestyle that was once very alien to me and has since gotten rather comfortable. The community is great, and the heavier observance of the calendar and traditions is a stabilizing force in a year of pandemic and the anxiety of beginning a family. I don't feel like the subject of a he-went-orthodox horror story. Instead, I feel like I've become a resident of a world that is much more rich and complex than people give it credit. You don't have to live here to find that out. Just be willing to meet someone new. Los Angeles, Part 1, The Rabbinite one of the things I love about this podcast is that I get to speak with rabbis from the far-flung reaches of this country. But regardless of how remote the Ravs are, be it Maine, Utah, or West Virginia, 
Something most of them have in common is their connection to key cities like New York City, Chicago, or Los Angeles. They either grew up, studied, or interned in some urban community. From the four corners of the world, the exiles have gathered themselves to places like Pico Robertson in L.A., and the stories that go with that are endless. I myself grew up near Los Angeles, but due to factors like the pandemic and moving east, I found myself interviewing my hometown rabbis via Zoom. Like every other audio journalist in existence these days, the pandemic took away the sound of me knocking on someone's door and replaced it with adorable, interrupting pets. It's just that it's a... Sorry. <laughs> she did it. The dog did come up. <laughs> That's the bark of Judy. Her human is Alyssa Thomas Newborn. Hey, my name is Alyssa Thomas Newborn, and I am the Rebbenit at B'nai David Judea Congregation in Los Angeles. I also am a board-certified chaplain. Rabbanit is not a title most Jews hear every day, and it's the first time this word has been on the podcast. In this context, it roughly translates as the feminine way of saying rabbi. It's a unique title that reflects the unique situation Thomas Newborn is in. B'nai David Judea is an Orthodox congregation. The job of, of the Rabbanit at B'nai David Judea is a clergy position. So I'm part of the spiritual leadership. Rav Yosef Kanevsky is the head rabbi, and I have the privilege of getting to work with him. He's such an inspiration, a source of kindness and support and wisdom and vision and humility. Um, so I'm very, very blessed that I get to work with someone who uh, is invested in me and who also always has treated me as a partner. Uh, my job is that of anyone else who's clergy. I provide pastoral care, spiritual care. I teach classes, like Parsha, different, different classes that I teach. I lead uh, Jewish support groups for our synagogue. Um, I give out, I give sermons, um, attend daily minion and give Divrei Torah, teach at those as well. She also runs the Young Professional Prayer Group, officiates life cycle events, and is a scholar on Halacha and Torah, just like a rabbi. That's because Thomas Newborn is one of the first in a new wave of Orthodox women receiving formal rabbinical training. While women have been ordained as rabbis for at least the last few decades in other Jewish denominations, Orthodoxy traditionally forbids it. But for many people in Thomas Newborn's position, this training and ordination is not about overturning tradition, but building a greater space for women within the halakhic parameters of gender roles. Hence titles like clergy and rabbinit, as opposed to rabbi. The men would be the ones to lead davening. But uh, in our community, women are able to give Divrei uh, Torah, they're able to give drush out sermons. Um, so I would get up on the bima and speak from a neutral area. Um, the rabbi and I would speak from the same location. I mean, I, I myself would not be leading mincha, let's say. I wouldn't count toward a minion. Um, but the truth is that in our community, the that's not really part of being a clergy member anyway. Uh, meaning that, you know, it's a, it, the services are often lay-led. It's not an essential part of the, the job structure. Wherever there's a space to include women within the halachic framework, we seek that out. And that's true, I think, within everything we do, we want to be as inclusive as possible and also balance what you referenced at the beginning of that tension really between being part of the tradition and also aware of and responding to the needs in modernity. 
Thomas Newborn's position is certainly a novel one, but she's also, in a sense, part of the family business. Her mother is a reform rabbi in Cantor. The crystallizing moment that brought Thomas Newborn down her path to the clergy was one of tragedy. When I was 15, in my community, there were several deaths. And uh, also my father got very sick and was hospitalized. And thank God he's okay. But I found myself at funerals and in hospitals watching the rabbis in our community and how they were responding to these extremely painful and scary moments. And I just remember feeling this calling, like that's, that's who I'm supposed to be. I'm supposed to be that person who's able to support people and be there in those really dark moments, um, just to be a source of presence and love, uh, to be a source of divinity when I can. But I, I felt that then in that, and I was, I was myself was having a very hard time and it was, it just became clear, like, this is what I need to do in order to serve God and God's people. For Thomas Newborn, this included doing so through orthodoxy, a path that opened up thanks in part to Yeshiva Maharat, the first yeshiva to provide rabbinical training and ordination to orthodox women. Maharat encourages graduates to choose their own titles, and some have taken the designation of rabbi. Others choose Rabba Maharat or Rabbinit. I was one of the first graduating classes, and when I enrolled, we didn't know what our title would be. We didn't know if we would get jobs. You know, it was just like, this is clearly the path for us, and we have to figure out uh, how to chart it in a way that that we can live in alignment with our relationship with Hashem, with God, and also um, be able to serve a community. So I, I really, I'm incredibly blessed because I was able to get this job in Los Angeles at this amazing shul with, as I said, this fantastic rabbi. Um, I, my husband is incredibly supportive and always has been. And, you know, there are many, many, many women before me who uh, wanted to get the education that I have and serve in a position like I have. Um, and there just wasn't a seminary for it yet. So thank God there's now all of these seminaries that are popping up and it's becoming something that's much more common. The yeshiva is still only in its 12th year and has just over 40 graduates, but as time passes, more and more Orthodox women are finding their places in the clergy. More organizations and synagogues are hiring women clergy, and advocacy groups like the Jewish Orthodox Feminist Alliance, also known as JOFA, have provided grants to shuls that hire women clergy. Several run their own Orthodox congregations, including one recent promotion in Israel. This has not come without pushback and accusations of things going too far. The Rabbinical Council of America, one of the most prominent Orthodox organizations in the country, has condemned the movement and has prohibited member synagogues from hiring them. I've been at Benny David for six years, and when I started, I definitely had people within the shul and outside of the shul who, you know, were waiting to see if I was if I was legit, curious and excited, but also suspicious and wondering, you know, what my motives were. Several people were like, you know, I'm just concerned. Are you, are you here to destroy orthodoxy? You know, no, understanding that that was never my goal and, and, and people just getting to know me instead of headlines or different things that they had heard or been told uh, about women in this kind of role. At this point, it's very normal. There's, there's communities for which having a woman in any spiritual leadership is not going to be the right fit. It's just not how the community functions or what the community wants. 
it depends on what the community is desiring, what's a good fit, the person who's coming into it. Um, you know, I know that my colleagues are, um, are in this because they want to serve God and they are excited about teaching and learning Torah and being committed to the community. Um, they're in this because they love Judaism and Halakha and God. And it's, it's not about overturning something. Regardless of how Thomas Newborn and her colleagues are perceived, there are radical changes afoot for Jews of all types, specifically from the tragedy and reshuffling of the COVID-19 pandemic. Synagogues had to scramble to redefine their role in a virtual world and debate how much communication technology should be allowed on holidays. Orthodox institutions like B'nai David don't allow any virtual services on holidays. One of the things I love about modern orthodoxy is that it's always the balance you're describing of maintaining halachic religious practice and also existing in modernity. And so it really challenges us to think creatively and think about how we can, what we can do to make someone else feel loved and special and seen when we can't embrace them, when we can't uh, physically show up to their home. I think, you know, things like cooking beforehand on Zoom with your family, the recipes that, you know, you always make, or um, I know a lot of people are, they'll get their families together before, they did this before Pesach or before Shavuot, where they come together and they give Divrei Torah, they share Torah ideas with each other before the holiday, or um, some people wrote letters to their Uh, family members that could be, you know, pre-opened and then actually read at the table when the holidays started. Things, just ways to make ourselves feel loved. Since this interview was conducted, the world has started to reopen. More and more synagogues of all denominations are meeting again in person and maybe even serving out the occasional bowl of post-COVID cholent. But the events of the last year continue to aggravate Jewish spaces. How much do legacy institutions matter? An orthodox lifestyle nearly requires synagogue attendance, but no one is immune from the debate. So I think, you know, for me, the reason to be a part of a shul and why these synagogues matter so much is because they're, they are our family. They're there for us. We're there for each other. We have a spiritual moral responsibility to be there for each other in many different moments. And it's both within our community and outside of our community. So what kind of uh, chesed work are we doing to make the Los Angeles community better and more sensitive to the homeless, to those with mental health issues? How can we make ourselves and our world better? So I think that the, the shul is the touch point uh, for people of all different ages to connect as a family. It's how often does a young professional get to be really close with a boomer who's not their parent or, you know, spend time with little kids that's, you know, that are not their own. For Thomas Newborn, the question of how does this matter to me is a central question Jews struggle with when dealing with topics like the synagogue, Israel, and their dichotomy of being both Jewish and American. And I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that we are in a culture where trying to figure out how to personalize something to ourselves is really a high value. Like I can go on Facebook and see only advertisements that apply to my stage in life. Everything is tailored to me in a very personal way, which is fantastic a lot of the time. Um, But I think that part of our obligation as being both Americans and Jews is seeing ourselves on a greater narrative and asking tough questions about how we can 
stay connected, um, looking at our history and also realizing we have a responsibility to the future. And it takes a lot of education. There's a lot of misinformation and anti-Semitism and anti-Israel information out there. It's a time where people are asking really hard questions like, why should this matter to me? Rabbis, spiritual leaders are required to step up and respond to those questions. Each individual American Jew has to find answers that resonate with him or her. Part of the religious identity is to help us see beyond ourselves and to see God outside of ourselves in others and also in a responsibility and sense of morality. But religion is also there to personalize too. So I think that it is, it does take us out of ourselves, but also the beautiful thing about religion at its best is it takes you within yourself too. Thomas Newborn says as a millennial, she grew up during an easy time to be Jewish in America, except for an instance during one Hanukkah growing up where the family menorah in the front window was shot at with a BB gun. She loves this country, where she says she can practice her religion as an equal. But like many other diaspora Jews, she also feels close to Israel and struggles with balancing these two worlds. I'm very, very connected to Israel. I love Israel. Uh, and I think that, you know, for me being being Jewish, requires that I am a Zionist, that I feel connected to the land. It's a part of our story as a people. It's where our our story ends and begins. And, and it's just, it's a place that's filled with holiness that I love to go to and I feel grateful exists. And I think every, certainly Orthodox American Jew, um, but I think it's the case in, in several of the denominations as well, you'll find individuals who have to answer that question of why not make Aliyah? Why not move to Israel? Because we want to support Israel and we love Israel. And, you know, there's a lot of guilt about not making Aliyah for many of us. And I think that uh, if we choose to stay in America, we need to be it needs to be a kiddush Hashem. We need to be uh, a source of positivity and a reminder of godliness that we need to we interact with people who are different than us. We need to treat them well. Uh, there's a lot writing on that. Um, but on top of it, I think it, it also means that, you know, we have to, we have to build those relationships. So organizations like APAC um, work to cultivate positive relationships uh, in a bipartisan way. Some Jews build outside relationships that are so positive they get romantic. While interreligious marriage rates in Orthodox spaces are much lower than the rest of the American Jewish community, it's still a fact of life for B'nai David. It's really hard because we often, you know, to meet someone and fall in love with them and feel that they complete your soul uh, or that they inspire you to be the best, best soul that you can be, no one wants to come in between that. Just by, by virtue of being an Orthodox Jew, we do not support interfaith marriage. Um, it's not something, you know, I would never officiate an interfaith marriage. That being said, though, I, I, I see in members of our community who have children who grow up Orthodox and then who end up marrying someone who's not Jewish, um, I see the real struggle and pain of wanting to love your child and their significant other to the fullest and having this huge rift and not knowing how to square that. And my mom is actually a reform rabbi in Cantor. Uh, and, you know, I, I know people in her community who are interfaith married or um, who have kids who are. And I think, I guess what I would say is that on the one hand, like I totally get it. On the other hand, so much of my belief and practice is surrounded by, you know, we are, we are a Jewish family because we are committed to these values and they are the foundation of who we are. And if I 
did not share those values with my significant other, then my marriage and my family would not be what I want it to be. It gets at sort of like the question of what our values are and what our goals are um, and how the, how the Jewish people will continue. I don't think there are many people in this world who, who want to get married just because they want the Jewish people to continue. That's not usually like the reason people get married. <laughs> um, so I guess, you know, I, I don't have a good answer. I, I also worked with people who have converted and, and it's a, it's a very rich and intense process as well. Thomas Newborn is also heavily involved with clergy work involving mental health care. She's a certified chaplain who's worked in hospitals like Cedar sinai Los Angeles, Columbia University Medical Center, and Bellevue in New York City. Her involvement is a personal one. So one of my family members has a serious mental illness. I grew up living with this everyday chaos and at times turmoil, at times immense forgiveness and love. Uh, and that, you know, that chaos was something that uh, shaped me as a person. Um, I know in myself that there are really great things about me that have come out of that. Um, I saw mental health issues up very upfront and personal. And I, I just, I wanted to face how I, I deal with psychiatric illness and how I how I empathize and how I make sense of it in my own world. Um, and one of the great things about chaplaincy training is it's it's learning how to how to care and support and hold the person that you're you're with, but it's also recognizing your own baggage that comes up and learning how to not let it interfere with those that you're serving. So um, I really had to face, I think, a lot of my own my own journey. And I found that I loved it. I just absolutely loved being connecting with with people who are going through mental health crises and, and being with them and supporting them in that darkness. For me, like it, it was like entering into a temple when I went into the psych ward. Like it's, it was a, a place of, of wanting to like crying out to God to help and to, to, to bring light into the darkest of caves. COVID has caused many people to see more and more aspects of our society in a new light. This includes mental illness where it seems like everyone was struggling more than ever due to the isolation and fear. Thomas Newborn says we all have a role to play in helping people through these struggles. Genuinely asking questions and and destigmatizing the anxiety and depression themselves, being able to to hold someone, and then also knowing the resources you can turn to to get the help. Because, you know, we're we're not all therapists or psychiatrists or professionals who can respond in the emergency moment, but we're all people who have hearts and and ears and souls who can listen to each other and love each other. You know, when we're not able to be physically together and and hug each other, um, calling and checking in frequently, being willing to ask the tough questions. Cause you know that we've, I'm sure we've all had this feeling before where you're like, you know, you can tell that something's wrong, but you're afraid to ask. Cause if you ask, will you somehow make it worse or will you point it out? But when you love someone, I think you have to ask those questions, you know, being, being willing to ask tough questions and be there for each other right now is very important. You know, I would just say, start, start with being willing and brave and loving and humble to ask and and notice when someone's in pain and be able to be there without trying to fix it. Because sometimes we want to put a Band-Aid on because we want to fix it, but that's not always what helps most. Um, Instead, being willing to listen and then genuinely explore what support will be helpful. Rabbinit Alyssa Thomas Newborn has built a career on service. 
This has been done in what some people might consider an unlikely, uncomfortable, or even hostile space for women. She says she has many times been asked questions like, how can you be okay covering your hair and not counting towards Minion? And do you feel like an equal? Thomas Newborn says it's important to realize how diverse orthodoxy is. The first thing I would say is that I think every orthodox woman has to do a lot of, especially in the 21st century, a lot of soul searching and reflection and possibly really battles with it all the time, because I hear this from, from members of our community, certainly and far beyond, of how to make sense of it where God did create us all equally and we have different roles and different practices, but um, not feeling that resentment or struggle is something that every Orthodox woman has to make peace with or figure out how to answer in an authentic way. And for every, every woman, it's going to be a different answer. The other thing I would say is the whole idea of modesty um, and feeling like, you know, you have to cover yourself up. Uh, and one of the things that I encounter very often is, is talking to teenage girls about their relationships with their bodies and, you know, how, how to not feel or associate shame um, with sneas and modesty, uh, but instead to, to think about how we relate to ourselves and, and not, not just our bodies, but our souls. How do, we, how do we see ourselves in this world and walk through this world with confidence and with self-love? Um, and that's, that's forget orthodoxy and forget orthodox women. Like that's just a really hard thing to do in life right now. Um, and I think I have found that the Jewish approach to really valuing the soul, to seeing our bodies as a vessel that God gave us, that's holy, that's on loan. You know, it's ultimately our bodies belong to God um, and we have to take care of them, which includes the food we put in our bodies and our exercise and how we think and our, our you know, our mental health. Everything that we put into how we care for ourselves is also how we thank God for all he's given us and, and how we serve God. So I think that you know, modesty, sneas as a concept, I think for me personally, I, I, I love it as a way of thinking how I can care for myself and certainly not a way of covering up myself, but rather sort of like uncovering my soul. In all my travels and interviews for this project, there are certain buzzwords that keep showing up. Some are obvious, like freedom, choice, and opportunity. Others make a surprising appearance, like how on multiple occasions when I asked rabbis about their thoughts on the future, they jokingly mentioned their lack of a crystal ball. Another buzzword is modernity. America is not just billed as a free and limitless society, at least on paper, but it's often coupled with the 21st century, which is hyped as a technological, informational, and ideological revolution. And in this world, everyone looks for modernity in their own way. Seems like that word is no more of a monolith than anything else in Judaism. American Rabbi Project, Los Angeles, Part 1, The Rabbinite, is written and produced by me, Justin Regan. Derek Poba helps with the web stuff. Thanks to Yerachmiel Krohn's Beth Vanderstoop and my parents for the assistance. If you're interested in donating to my podcast or having me speak at your next social event, please go to my website, rabbiproject.com. I'm also on Facebook at facebook.com slash rabbiproject, Twitter with at rabbiproject, and Instagram as American Rabbi Project. And until next time, shalom and safe driving.